Udhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasang So obviously we are all aware that today is Christmas time of year when the followers of Jesus Christ mark the birth of their teacher and also reflect on the generosity and compassion that he demonstrated. Those of you that were brought up in Christian tradition probably be familiar with many examples in the Bible of being compassionate and towards the healing the leper and healing the, the blind man and showing respect and to, towards women and towards children also this is a time of year where regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not it's a time when people give gifts to each other here in the monastery the kitchen produces a significant batch of shortbread and two of the members of the community go around visiting our neighbours and giving out little boxes of nicely wrapped shortbread with a card on it. And also we in the monastery receive gifts from friends, family, relatives. So I thought this evening we could contemplate together the theme of compassion as a gift, something, a gift that that we can receive, a gift that we can give and can offer. It's nice to receive material gifts, and however, the gift of a compassionate heart is something even more precious. In the Buddha's teachings on the four divine abidings, which most people will be familiar with, there are two examples of um, empathy and encouragement to cultivate empathy. Empathy in the context of suffering, which is referred to as karuna or compassion, and empathy in the context of joy, which is mudita, taking delight in the well-being of others. So, so tonight we could perhaps focus on the first, and which is empathy in the context of suffering or karuna or compassion. Hopefully, everybody has memories of being on the receiving end of compassion and how beautiful that can be. I still have a very beautiful memory of receiving compassionate attention from from Ajahn Chah. This is probably over, well, it is it's over 40 years ago now this incident happened and, and yet I still remember it with, with great appreciation and it was a time when 
I was suffering immensely. I think I'd been a monk for about perhaps two years by then, and and my initial period as a monk, when I was living with Ajahn Tate, had was a, a time that was really inspiring, uplifting, and a brief period where it was wonderful. However, it was followed by a very long, extended period of excruciating mental and emotional pain, terribly, intensely confused and disoriented. And during one of these periods where I had moved to live with Ajahn Chah, and I was feeling overwhelmed by pain, and one way or another, I imagine Ajahn Sumato uh, suggested it, uh, agreed, because I was living in Watnana Chart in those days, and and Warapanyo, as he was called then, or Paul Brighter as he's called these days, was going to see Ajahn Chah, and I think the suggestion was that I tag along and see if Ajahn Chah could maybe offer some help. And this confused young guy, and I clearly needed some help. Anyway, in that situation, I remember there were quite a number of people around sitting underneath Ajahn Chah's guti, and and Purapanya was explaining to Ajahn Chah what I was struggling with, and and I still remember the quality of his attention and how he looked at me, and, and Paul's explaining this, you know, my feeling overwhelmed by guilt and fear and self-doubt, and, and Ajahn Chah looking at me didn't give teachings on how to understand guilt and fear and self-doubt. He just looked at me and said, I've been there. And in Thai, Pom Khoi Bing Pom Khoi Bing I've been there. And, and what a gift. And his being able to see this person in that state to hear what was being said mm. meant that I wasn't feeling so lost in the horror that was the, the guilt and fear and self-doubt and, and that was powerful and when, when we do feel overwhelmed by the struggles of life it's very easy to feel isolated and, and lost. And, and if somebody just tries to tell us it's all in the mind or everything passes or we'll still snap out of it, or, uh, that doesn't help. And Ajahn Chai did go on on that occasion to also point out and said, well, you know, if something is uncertain and you insist that it be certain, you're going to suffer. And, that also, I'm very grateful for that. That little extract of his teachings is is printed up and framed in on the wall in, in the uh, the bamboo grove kuti we have here in the monastery. If something's uncertain, you insist that it be certain, and you're going to suffer. That's the wisdom. However, that wasn't what he offered first. What he first offered was that quality of attention and compassionate attention that meant that I felt met, I felt seen. 
In terms of Ajahn Chah's practice, it's probably fair enough to assume that it was the cultivation of wisdom that came first, and, and the compassion came second. And, and the wisdom that saw through the, the deluded eye meant that he was able to experience and express compassion. In terms of his practice, it's probably the wisdom that came first. But in terms of the application, in terms of what he shared, it wasn't that he was just giving me some interesting theory. Rather, he was offering something that was more appropriate to the situation I was in at the time. And, uh, so as I was mentioning, I, I imagine, I like to think that all of us have have uh, experiences of having received compassion from others when we've been struggling. It's good to consciously register how good that feels. And then to then to ask the question, is this something that I can cultivate and offer to others? Certainly there are plenty of others who are suffering, who are struggling, who would benefit from compassion and probably benefit more from our compassionate attention rather than whatever clever ideas we might have about, about Dhamma and everything being impermanent and, and so on. So, Ajahn Chah on that occasion, and I'm sure there were many other occasions also, where he was able to offer a quality of attention that had a truly beneficial effect, because why? Why was he able to offer that? Not everybody seems to be able to offer that, why not? Why was Ajahn Chah able to offer that quality of attention? And I would say it's because he had done the work of meeting himself in his own suffering. Because he had met himself in his loneliness, in his anger, in his fear, and and let go of himself. Because only when you meet yourself can you let go of yourself. And because he had done that work, it meant that his attention was then available. He wasn't lost in the sad and sorry state of self-obsession. He wasn't lost in his own drama. And so his attention was available to truly offer to others. And then that gift of knowing that you're not alone, how transforming that can be, how freeing that can be, instead of the contracted state of I'm alone, and that I'm responsible for all this terrible pain, how awful that can be, for the possibility to arise that you're not alone. Probably you, most of you would be familiar with the teaching or the example we find in scriptures of Kisagotami, who, as the records reported, this, this woman, her only child, had died, and small child had died and she was so beside herself in grief that she couldn't put this corpse down and she was carrying around and, 
And one of the village people there said, well, there's somebody who can help you, who's staying nearby the Buddha, he can help you with this. And so she rushed off to see the Buddha. And he said, yes, indeed, I can help you. However, what I need first is a cup of mustard seed. And this cup of mustard seed needs to come from a house where nobody has died. That's the only condition. So, so kiss her go to me and rushes off and, and hope that she can find a cup of mustard seed. Didn't expect it to be difficult. She shouldn't be able to get a cup of mustard seed. And however, what happens? She goes from house after house and and finds that everywhere somebody's died. And this happens right through until apparently, according to this story, around dawn, she recognized all oh, this, this pain, this sense of loss, this despair that she's experienced is not just something that she alone is suffering from. This happens to all beings. All beings lost in unawareness suffer. Suffer from sadness, sorrow, pain, despair. So if we are interested, as I hope we are all interested in being able to cultivate the possibility of, of sharing that warmth of heart with others who are in need of it, then we need to also, as our teachers have done, meet ourselves, truly meet ourselves when we're suffering, instead of just avoiding ourselves. It can be very tempting when you're caught up in guilt, such an awful, awful condition, a kind of toxic combination of self-hatred and fear, very complex mental, emotional state. If it arises, of course the impulse is to want to do anything to get away from it. However, sooner or later, we have to stop trying to get away from it and meet it, and not just meet it in our heads with some idea about why we might be feeling guilty, but really in our hearts, in the, in the center of our chest, that feeling of pain. Yeah. We've, been, we've been fighting with ourselves and lying to ourselves in our hearts for so long that it's quite normal for many people they find that they, they don't even know how to investigate what's going on in the heart. The heart becomes so so cold or even sometimes so numb that they can't read what's happening there. And we've been arguing with ourselves in our heads for so long that it's very difficult to stop the arguments. We've become habituated to arguing. Arguing with ourselves in our heads and telling ourselves stories about reality. Why do we do it? Because if we stop doing it, then we've got to feel the pain of life. So if we want to cultivate the heart of compassion, then this is what's called for. To meet ourselves in the place where we feel unable, obstructed, and to patiently, sensitively, with interest, bear with what can sometimes feel really unbearable 
until the letting go happens. It's the letting go of, of the dukkha, it's not letting go of ourselves. And just a little bit more, our hearts are open and perhaps a little bit warmer and a little bit stronger and more able to meet the next level. And then maybe the doubt arises, can I handle this? This is too much. Well, if you read the teachings, like for instance, the story of when Ajahn Chah was in the charnel grounds, he definitely thought it was too much at the time. Or on that occasion where where I was meeting with him and Aurapanya was explaining the kind of my feeling overwhelmed by his negative emotional mental states and Ajahn Chah went on to explain said so that I felt as if my brains were gonna burst. This Tung Si said Jet which means I think I felt like my brains were going to burst. He was so caught up in self doubt. So even if we feel that we can't handle it, just let's remember that our teachers have been there before us. It can feel like that. It can look like that. And it can take a, a lot of skill and a considerable amount of time. I think that it's not too wide of the mark to say that my time in Thailand was really like a four-year-long nervous breakdown. And then coming to live in Britain, I don't know how long it took, maybe seven years before I felt somewhat recovered from that ordeal. It can take time and it can take skill. Like anything else, however, in life, anything else that we need to learn to do, like typing or speaking a language or playing a musical instrument. I don't imagine Yehudi Menuhin was a virtuoso the first time he picked up a violin, or, or Ravi Shankar the first time he picked up a sitar. He put hours and hours of work. However, this work, this inner work, this learning to meet ourselves on the heart level, truly, honestly, in an unobstructed way, is a work that can have great benefit. And we need to be, I would suggest, we need to prepare ourselves to be surprised by some of the things we discover. One occasion where Ajahn Chah was talking about the real practice and he said, he said it's like you're hanging out with your best friends and the Buddha comes along and says, break it up. Some of our habits of heedlessness that are actually obstructions. However, we've become so used to them, they feel so much part of who I am that to let go of them can be really difficult. You might think that these struggles and obstructions that we feel burdened by, we want to let go of them, we're keen to let go of them. However, just the nature of the deluded eye is such that 
even though something is painful, if we've been identified as it for a long time, we're disinclined to let go of it. It feels too much like who I am. So we need to be prepared to be surprised by some of the things we discover if we get interested in this practice of learning to be truly honest with our own hearts. Something we do need to do. There's a lot of talk these days, a lot of very good talk, a lot of very good commentary on the nature of trauma and the incidents that happen to people early on in life in particular that can leave a trauma or a wound on the the psyche of an individual. However, there's another sort of trauma that we'd be wise to reflect upon, and that's that's the trauma that we inflict upon ourselves, the trauma of abandoning our own hearts, abandoning our own sensitivity. Because life can sometimes feel too painful, we just close down and refuse to feel it. And this can happen at stages of life when we don't even know what we're doing. It's just that later on in life we wonder why we're so out of balance. Why we seem to have lost enthusiasm, lost the joy of what's happened. So once again, if we feel inspired to do this work of re-owning our native sensitivity and feeling what we feel without feeling obliged to become what we feel, to feel the sadness without having to become sad, to feel fear without having to become afraid. If we're inspired to do that, then we need to be willing to give it time. However, we do, thankfully, have these teachings and we have good friends who encourage us and support us to have the faith that it takes. It takes faith in selfless wisdom, it takes faith in selfless compassion to outshine these dark shadows cast by an awareness. Thank you very much for your teaching.